Following the methodology from our best-selling book, The Resilient Shield, we are delighted to announce the inaugural Resilience Retreat, which will occur in far north Queensland between Thursday the 27th of October and Sunday the 30th of October. The whole point of the retreat is to give you the ability to build your shield, to develop your knowledge and understanding of the key principles related to resilience, to enhance your toolkit and to optimise your performance. Come and be part of an incredible group of humans that are like-minded. Meet our facilitators and motivational speakers. To find out more, email us at retreat at resilientshield.com. Hope to see you there. Welcome to The Unforgiving 60 with your hosts, Ben Pronk and Tim Curtis. As two ex-SAS guys armed with MBAs, Ben and Tim seek out people leading lives less ordinary and talk with them about how they fill their unforgiving minutes and what helps them go always a little further. Like intellectual bowerbirds, we aim to collect shiny little objects of knowledge that we think can help build better humans. G'day everyone and welcome to the Unforgiving 60 podcast. My name is Ben Pronk. And my name is Tim Curtis. That it is. Now, before we get into this episode, we just want to put a bit of a trigger warning out there. This episode is going to be talking about uh, the Bali bombing with an individual who was actually there. And as such, it's going to contain some uh, detail which some people may find disturbing um, and uh, sort of details of the incident as well as uh, some of the, the trauma that followed. So we certainly advise if you feel that that's going to be something that's difficult for you uh, to, to maybe reconsider before you go on. And we certainly advise that if anyone is having issues with stressors or trauma of any nature, then please get in touch with some of the um, uh, wonderful counselling services that are available, including the ones we are going to link in the, the show notes. Yeah, well said. And I met Brad McElroy actually in the SAS Soldiers Club, the Gratwick Club, aka the Gratto. Uh, he approached me and said, let's have a chat. And I'm not too proud to say that when he started to tell this story, I was in absolute tears. Mm. It is incredible um, and somewhat confronting this particular story about a guy, 19 years old, just playing footy from a footy club that were pretty average, quite frankly, <laughs> but had a pretty good year. Yeah. And they went to Bali to celebrate it. And the year was 2002 and the month was October and the day was the 12th. And look, my story with Macca sort of goes back a number of years before that, but I'd never heard this story. I, I was aware clearly that, that he'd had this um, sort of life-changing experience uh, through the, the Bali bombing, but it was only during the recording of this podcast that I really understood the full magnitude of what he'd been through, what he'd dealt with, what he'd done for other people uh, during the event and, and in the aftermath. And I, I can only echo your... Uh, sentiments, Tim. I, I was pretty much gobsmacked for most of this conversation in terms of what an amazing human he is. We talk a lot about resilience, and certainly Dan <laughs> talks about yeah. post-traumatic growth. This is a guy who epitomises our definition of resilience. Absolutely. I mean, if you are talking about the ability to get through something tough and come out on the other end, um, you know, the ability to, as Lise Notabart would say, have a better than expected outcome given the adversity faced. This is a human who has faced a ridiculously difficult 
adversity and has had an absolutely incredible outcome and, and is a real inspiration, I think, uh, not only to people who've, who've dealt with trauma, but to anyone. How do we get around the fact that in this interview he says, I haven't really been through much, not in comparison with you guys? <laughs> Put it this way. If Brad McElroy has not been through much, I do not want to hear the story of someone who's been through a lot. Let's hear his story. Let's get on with the show. Welcome to the Unforgiving 60 podcast. I'm Tim Curtis, as always, with my co-host, Ben Pronk. How are you, Tim? I'm absolutely fantastic. You don't look... (laughs) (laughs) No, you're looking good. You're looking good. Good morning. Rundown. Good morning to you and good morning to Brad McElroy. Nailed it. Macca. (laughs) I had to practice that a few times. Well, I've only ever known Macca as Macca. Yeah. Mm. And in fact, uh, the little backstory, um, I was up the Gratwick Club, the club in the SAS Regiment on Anzac Day, and you know, having a, having a drink, and this guy walks past, grabs me, says, you're going to be here for a little while longer. Correct me if I'm wrong here, Macca. Right. Um, I said, yeah, yeah, yeah. He goes, I want to I grab a drink and, and let's have a chat. And uh, I thought, some fit-looking young fella, he was an operator, I'd never seen him before. Off he went to the bar, brought back two rums and coke and started telling me his story, which was incredible. And I think, I'm not, not exaggerating here, I was in tears when yep. I started to hear some of that story. I mean, how he got connected to the regiment, and he was not an operator, but a very close connection with the personalities in the regiment. We'll explore some of that in a little while. And big fan of the regiment's second <laughs> out of two best <laughs> rock bands, uh, Tongue Chat. And if you've ever... If you've ever uh, forgotten the tunes from Tongue Charge. Here's one just as a little teaser. Yeah, we boys from Perth. A few of the boys went down last year, so uh, we're going to play a couple, well, one, one song. A couple. <laughs> <laughs> Here all night. Can you talk about your childhood and growing up in Perth? Uh, yeah, well, I probably didn't grow up in Perth, actually. I was uh, born in Edwards. Great research. <laughs> <laughs>
So let's yeah. talk about the Kingsley Footy Club. Yeah, where is it, and what do those critters get up to? Bit of deja vu. Yeah, so Kingsley Footy Club. It's in, obviously part of the Kingsley suburb, which is uh, northern suburb of Perth, just inland from Hillary's. Um, massive junior football club, one of the biggest in the southern hemisphere for years. Thousands of kids running around, sort of three ovals. Um, so sort of came through those ranks. Uh, there is a difference between the Kingsley Junior Football Club and Kingsley Amateur sort of Seniors Footy Club. Um, bit of separation between the two, but you know, still fall under one sort of big banner, I suppose. So, mm. um, so yeah, so there's it's not always a given that you play juniors and then play seniors yeah. with the Amis. So, mm-hmm. mm. and your position. Where did you play? Uh, I was um, growing up. I was a bit shorter and a bit rounder than I am now. So, <laughs> um, yep. so yeah, played sort of a back pocket or forward pocket, bit of a hiding role. But as I said, it's uh, I was more of a social footballer than short round kids get back pocket or forward pocket. Yeah. That, that's 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 the <laughs> exactly. Or, exactly. or not at all. They can also play in the Dungeons and Dragons. Club. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> well, that's what you know. That, you know that. Yeah, I warmed a, I warmed a fair amount of the bench for a while. I think so. Yeah. Well, let's come to 2001 and Kingsley Footy Club were pretty crap. In fact, uh, I was reading an article that was written on the Kingsley Footy Club and I might just quote you a a little (laughs) section of it. You're going to love this. Kingsley had been the sort of club that parents warn their boys about and steer (laughs) them away from. Perhaps they'd heard the original club song, quote, we like to drink, we like to smoke, we think that life's a fucking joke, unquote, (laughs) and had decided that they would take their talents anywhere. Kevin Paltridge said, we were an E-grade football side that was going nowhere. We were a social team that was never going to win a premiership. Is that accurate yeah, leading up to 2002? Accurate. In fact, I was, um, we've got a 20-year anniversary for some stuff coming up in the near future, and I was reading um, some of the, the old football logs from 95, 96 when the club first got around the competition in Sunday League. And there's some fa- fantastic quotes along the lines of uh, Kingsley once again played gallantly, although <laughs> went down by over a hundred points. You know, so <laughs> and so beaten by Rolly Stone. By, yeah. So we're in we're in Amos playing E grade at that time. In 2001, we're E grade amateurs. Yep. Yep. We'd come from Sunday League. And then enter is- Simon Quayle and some teammates from an A grade team, Scarborough. Yep. Jason Stokes, Anthony Stewart, Brad Phillips, and they brought. You know, the ideas, new rules and discipline, including that you had to turn up to training twice yeah, a week. Yeah, that was <laughs> rubbish, isn't it? That is bullshit. Um, yeah. And quite odd, our football started getting better with a few of those. <laughs> I couldn't believe it. So, but they also brought in some some really um, some fun new culture. We were basically just a bl- bunch of uh, mates that sort of used to kick the footy around and these guys brought in some, some actual football nows and, and the like. We had some great footy players, don't get me wrong, but um, yeah, these guys brought in a slightly higher level of professionalism around football. So So in 2002, you start to win a few games, Mm. and indeed the reserve grade side wins the club's first ever premiership. Yep, I played uh, every game of that year except the grand final. I got dropped by Uh, my coach on the Thursday uh, night. (laughs) We used to go for beers after Thursday night training and selection, and uh, I'd buy him rum and coke every Thursday night at the pub, rum and coke, rum and coke. And he said, keep this up, you're going to get a spot. <laughs> and when he dropped me on the Thursday night, he said, you were one bourbon and coke shy. <laughs> so, so, uh, so I didn't actually play in the game, but I played all, all season. So. How did that feel sitting on the bench and watching the boys win a premiership? I, I'm very much a, a community ideas sort of guy. So I um, I was pretty happy. To, you know, I knew I was if that, someone was going to get dropped, it was probably going to be me. So I sort of pre, pre-prepared myself, I suppose, in the... In, in the outcome, but 
didn't say it didn't hurt, but um, yeah, it was good to see the boys get a win, and I was certainly part of all the celebrations that, that took <laughs> off from there. Yeah, and the senior the senior team also made the grand final, mm-hmm. didn't yep. win, but yep. got promoted from E grade to D grade. Correct. Yeah. Now which was a big yeah, which was a big move. Yeah. Move for us and as, as part of all this sort of change culture and the new vision, there was a plan, of course, at the end of the year yep. to go on a footy trip to Bali. Absolutely. So the club, yes, it was sort of three teams or two by then because our Colts had sort of forfeited the season. But there was a real core group of about 20 blokes that regardless of what t- team you played in, we'd all be, you know, um, on the beers on weekends and, and catching up. So mm. there was a really good core of guys. So even though the, the ones lost, there was the footy trip planned was certainly a, you know half of them and basically half of the twos. Um, and all year we'd prepared. We had um, stupid bottle tops that, you know, if you got caught with it not on your persons, it was a fine yeah, and all yeah, this yeah. sort of stuff. So And you'd have guys knocking on your door at 2 a.m. in the morning <laughs> to, to try and catch you. you out. Yeah, exactly. Um, <laughs> yeah, so there was all court. sorts of little challenges and, and whatever throughout the season and all leading up to this, what was meant to be a pretty incredible footy trip away. And how many uh, guys ended up going to Bali? There was 20. So there was 19 blokes in the footy club and then another guy... Um, filled in for a bloke that couldn't take his spot so there was 20 of us that went over and on the 12th of October 2002 you decided to enter into a bar and have a few drinks can you talk about that yeah so what sort of started our plane had got delayed from Perth so I think we were meant to take off at about 10 or 11 o'clock plane was delayed till about 2.30 <laughs> so there's 20 blokes going to a footy trip sitting in Perth airport so we uh, decided to tuck into a few <laughs> into a few brews um, so by the time we got to the Bounty, we'd unpacked, we'd had a few drinks there, we then went for dinner, we'd had a few drinks there. So by the time we decided to walk into the uh, Surrey Club for the night out, we'd all, we'd all had a few drinks. <laughs> we'd all mm. had a few mm. drinks. Well primed. We were very well primed, yeah, yeah. exactly. So. so at about 11pm on the 12th of October, um, a suicide bomber inside the nightclub Paddy's Bar detonated a bomb in his backpack which injured many and caused others to flee into the street. And about 20 seconds later, a second and a far more powerful car bomb inside a Mitsubishi van uh, was detonated by a second suicide bomber outside the Sari Club, which was an open-air thatched roof bar. What do you remember about that moment? Uh, I remember I'd spent the previous half an hour working on how I was going to take a 21-year-old Swedish girl back to my <laughs> hotel room um i'd funny story i'd uh she leant over uh quite late in the evening and said could i teach her how to surf and i said we can go straight to the beach from my hotel room in the morning <laughs> now i've never surfed a day in my life but i was going to work out <laughs> in those then, hours yeah. how i was going to work out how to teach her so um and uh i'd just given her a big kiss we heard the first bomb go off in patties and then there was this real delay, but the bomb sounded like a firework to me. Mm-hmm. There was that whistle before the pop. And so I remember leaning back so we could see up from under the uh, thatch roof, waiting for the firework to sort of pop. Um, and I'd sort of tapped her shoulder and said, look up. And uh, that's when the, the van bomb's just gone whack. Mm. Um, <clears throat> yeah, I remember seeing just a massive orange flash um, and then hitting the table just with this force of a, just an unbelievable blast behind. Um, and then that was it, just going into a bit of shock for a while. Understandably. Mm. So you, do I remember it correctly that a number of your teammates were sitting around the same table? Yeah, so there was um, myself and Joanne on one side of the table and we had our backs to the bomb. We were, I think we were about eight metres 
away from the bomb when it detonated. Um, on the other side, there was two mates and two girls. Um, and then a whole lot of the other footy boys were on the dance floor. There was guys scattered everywhere <laughs> in the bar. You know, we were hell bent on organising a party back at our hotel that <laughs> night. So the guys were all working their magic at all, <laughs> all ends of the bar. So it was a pretty, uh, pretty funny scene. But yeah, we we're all pretty scattered throughout the place. Yeah. So in that instant, two hundred and two people were killed. Yep. Uh, Eighty-eight Australians and seven from your footy club. Yep. Uh, another two hundred and three were injured as a result of both of those blasts. When you retained your faculties, what did you witness? Uh, <clears throat> I've heard the start of your the resilience shield. Yeah. You talk about those moments where yeah. it's almost like a movie, and I described it very early on, back in about '03, where it felt like the start of Saving Private Ryan when he comes up on D-Day beaches and he goes into this shock where yeah. you're seeing movement, you're hearing some noise, but it's with this huge blanket of sort of shock that stands between you and reality, I suppose. So, mm. um, I'd sort of been blown out of my chair and into this large pillar, and then. The way the bombs actually sucked back from the external walls, I've been pulled back and ended up far closer to the bomb than when it went off. And I was on top of a little retaining wall and I could not breathe for the life of me. I'd sort of busted a few ribs um, and I could feel that there was quite a bit of pressure on my face. So I knew I'd been somewhat damaged by whatever just happened. Um, so in the moments of that sort of extreme winded condition, mm. I was trying to take a bit of stock of what's going on. And it was these moments before... Um, the fire sort of really erupted where it was just, no one knows what's just happened. People are sort of just littered around and the whole club was basically at floor level now. Um, and then this fire just went up. So I just remember thinking, right, get your breath, get out of there. Didn't know what sort of was going on. I randomly thought there was a car accident that had just happened on the street. There was no indication yeah. that there was ever a bomb that was going to go off or anything. Mm. So... We were all pretty unprepared, I suppose. <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah, I mean, completely understandably. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's yeah, not like you're in a war zone or anything. Yeah. No, exactly. There's sort of no warning, no preparation. That, uh, you know, we'd been drinking all day. We're on a footy trip. We're just mm. a couple of local knockabout blokes. So, mm. um, yeah, it was, um, yeah. And then, as I said, the, uh, within a couple of seconds, it just went from a weird, calm shock level to just enormous panic. This fire, obviously the thatch roofing from all the little huts mm. had hit floor level um, and just ignited like it was, you know, filled with petrol. It, this place just erupted. Um, and I was only metres from the front gates, basically. So I just got up and walked out and walked past this huge crater in the ground um, and then sort of stood about probably... I thought I was probably 100 metres away from the club when I stopped running, but I was about 10 metres and I mm -hmm. turned back and thought, am I the only person that's just walked out of that place? Mm. You know? No one was following you? No one came out the front way, you know? And I was standing there just looking at the place and it was just a, a fireball and then just started seeing, you know, people just jumping over side fences so I could see that there was um, a bit of action still going on inside, you know, between, well, past the fire from where I was, yeah. I'm, I'm really interested. Uh, like clearly, the the IED blast that I describe in the book is is nothing on what what you've you've gone through in terms of proximity and damage and all that sort of stuff. And I remember that same sort of overwhelm and the kind of Saving Private Ryan type thing where the soundtrack doesn't meet up and you know yeah. that those weird sort of sensations and seeing little details. I talk about the undies in the tree and that yeah, sort of yeah, stuff. Yeah. That just yeah. all seem weird. Yeah, exactly. Um, but we had all this training to fall back on. Like so, yeah. even though like. Uh, well, A, 
we kind of expected it. IEDs were a thing. Yep. Um, it still was completely disorientating, but we had this kind of training that, that, okay, shit, I need to reorientate. We need to get a perimeter. We need to call a medevac. We, we had these things, uh, this checklist to fall back on. And I think without that, I, I don't even know what I would have started to do. I mean, did, yeah. did you have any thought process or, you, you know, you, you said, you, okay, I'm getting out of the club, but but then it's almost like, what on earth now? Yeah, but I think I think it, everyone has an autopilot, mm-hmm. right? Um, you, you guys have been trained to 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 react in a certain way and to how to basically direct that autopilot so it knows what to do in that instance. Mm-hmm. But it just takes over, right? Like you, the last thing you're not going to sit there, you know, looking at a fire go up while you're in the fire. You know, your body just says, "Get up, get the hell out of there." Yeah, yeah. You know, and and it's funny. You know, I've got a a, a mate who's. Um, just been awarded for um, pulling a kid out of the water who just you know got chomped by a great white, and his I remember his wife giving him a heap of you know, <laughs> flack for it, saying the shark was out to sea. You've gone out to get this guy before coming in. Why didn't you just come in? You've got kids, and he said, I don't know. It just yeah. it's yeah, an yeah. autopilot, you know. Mm-hmm. And you in the same breath, you can't basically hang shit on people that do just come straight in. That's their autopilot. Correct. Yeah. You know? right. So my autopilot was get up, get out. And then, hang on, stop. Where am I running? I've never been here before. I remember running. I remember thinking I'm running in the wrong direction than where we'd come from. So I'm going away from the hotel. And where are the boys? This I'm standing here on my own. You know, I turned 19 two days before and first time out of the country. And, you know, I was a kid. So, yeah. First time I left my home Through the darkest tunnels I will roam And if I lose my way Oh, I can cope I leave my largest fears behind And swim through this world of ice But I, I won't give up my I won't, I won't give up my those sitting around the table with you that night, how many of those at the table were killed? Uh, all bar me and a mate. What, why did you survive? How did you no survive? No idea. So um, Joanne was sitting beside me. So her side and my arm was around her back. Her legs was, you know, leg was against mine and she was cut in half, top half sitting on top of the table. So there was basically nothing. The way we were sitting, we were eight metres between the bomb and us. And there was nothing except a small bamboo fence between us. So, yeah, how we how we survive <laughs> has got messed up. <laughs> mm-hmm. So, there was a one meter crater. You're running away from the Sari Club. Yep. Um, you know, complete devastation. You can only imagine it. Mm-hmm. Yep. How did you reorientate? Um, I I remember just standing there and just basic shock just looking at this place going yeah I, I couldn't see how anyone else had just walked out of that um, my hearing had gone yeah. at that stage but I'd perforated both eardrums one's come back over time the other one's decided it's not going to play the game out of interest did you hear the blast did you or, or did it sort of shut down your, your yeah hearing? no I, I, I reckon I heard the blast yeah, yeah okay. absolutely yeah yeah um pretty loud <laughs> <laughs> can imagine. It was really yeah. loud, but funny enough that the the I reckon I felt the shockwave of it before I mm-hmm. heard it or mm-hmm. felt it. It just sends that that sound, well, well, that sort of pressure, air pressure out first. It's just incredible. It hit, yeah, it hit, hit me like a truck. But um, 
yeah, I, I then saw from behind a, a van, I saw a mate, Jason Madden, and another mate, Cal Zoma, um, brother of Trav, actually. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. Cal and Cal was my best mate for for years up until then. So seeing him walk out behind a van, I just thought, "You fucking beauty!" <laughs> I couldn't hear him, and they were both pretty, um, pretty dazed and in shock. And I, I remember grabbing Cal and saying, "We're going to get back to the hotel." And they both sort of nodded, and I took that as indication. Let's go back to the hotel. Um, so we, the three of us, ran off, and we we're sort of asking directions. We we're running in completely the wrong direction. <laughs> um, but, uh, yeah, we're all pretty messed up and probably could have done with a bit of um, medical attention at that stage. Um, we ended up back at the hotel and just started counting the boys coming in one by one um, while receiving a bit of attention ourselves. Um, and so for the next probably six hours, so that was what, just shy of midnight basically, the next six hours were just who's come back. I think we had about ten guys come back throughout the night. So there was still sort of eight or nine missing at the time. And the footy club refused to leave Bali. Uh, you know, mm. interesting little sidebar is the, the Bali hospitals were very underprepared for the amount yeah. of casualties, and you can yeah. understand that. Yeah. Um, and so a lot of uh, responsibility fell on medical evacuation to Australian hospitals. Yeah. But the footy team refused to, to leave, right? Yeah, we sort of had a real... Um, and it was a great thing, you know, to, to be able to put our energy somewhere... And we didn't really know what had happened. I remember um, before we sort of started going to the hospitals, it wasn't until mid-Sunday that there was a news reporter. We were sitting there in the pool bar watching the news, and they said, you know, there's been three casualties. And I thought, shit, has people died in that? Even though, you know, the amount of bodies I'd sort of run over in the way of getting out of that club, you know, it was just weird that, holy shit, people have died in there. And then that number just kept growing and growing and growing. So... um, and, we, and, was, and on that, was there obviously early days speculation about what caused it? How long before? Because I'm, no, I'm trying to think chronology. There, there yeah. hadn't really been a big terrorist attack in our region. No. That was the first big no, one. No, that's right. It? Yeah, so it was yeah. Jamar Islamia motivated, yep. and it was motivated off the back of global war on terror, but yep. Australians were specifically cited Targeted, yeah. for our, our role in, in, in Timor-Leste, um, oh. interestingly. Um, so the evidence suggests. Mm. Mm. Yeah, so um, we, I think... It was reported that some gas canisters had blown up in a kitchen until maybe later that night. Right. And then it sort of became pretty obvious that the crater out the front might have been something. (laughs) (laughs) That that wasn't there when we walked in. We didn't keep the kitchen gas bottles out there. So, um, yeah, then it sort of came about. And then obviously before too long, we had the Australian Federal Police over there taking statements and they were sort of saying, look, there's, there's something at play here. So, yeah, they were brilliant, actually, those boys. Huge shout out. Keen to come back to that, but really interested as this unfolds, how's your sort of emotional state? You know, they, they talk about the five stages of grief. There's a sort of disbelief and then an anger and a bargaining or whatever. Did you go through any of those phases? And, and when it was, uh, I guess, evolved that it was a deliberate act of terrorism, was there anger? You know, how, how did that sort of play out? Um, I think we had this weird, almost bravado, but naivety amongst us. Um my hotel room had its all its front window blown out, and I remember laying there in bed that night. And there's like glass, broken glass on the floor. How far like, away is this? Your, your we were, but the Bounty Hotel is a good couple hundred meters. <laughs> yeah, um, and you know, it was just it just was somewhat normal that I'd just sleep in the same hotel room bed while the whole front window is just completely blown. And <laughs> yeah. a mate who was staying in a room a couple of down, um, my roommate Phil Britton was 
Um, well, he was missing at the time, so I had a spare bed in my room where Brits' stuff was. So uh, my mate Bruiser lobbed in with me, and um, we just sort of carried on like, oh, well, yeah, we're here on a footy trip. And, and then obviously um, reports of a bombing, and mm. we thought, like, oh, we'd, we'd better stick together. I'd much rather a mate in my room than on my own. Yeah, yeah. Um, but we didn't take on board exactly with the situation. Obviously, there was just no playbook for that at that stage yeah understandable mm. and so you, the the sort of situation you're saying by the pool bar is the the news reports starting to come in mm-hmm. it's it strikes you as, as confronting or, or um profound that the people have been killed yeah. how long before i mean you're obviously keeping a tally of, of who's missing how yeah. long before the the realization that some of your mates were, were caught up um there were reports that um brits and laurie kerr um had been you know, helped get into taxis and get to hospitals. Mm-hmm. And so we thought, great, you know, we didn't know what hospitals, no one knew what hospitals, yep. there was all these makeshift sort of medical centres at the time. So we thought, okay, and that gave us a, an immediate focus. All right, Sunday night or Sunday afternoon, we're going to go and find Brits and then couldn't find him. So Monday, all right, let's go and find Brits. And at the same time, we realised pretty quickly that the amount of casualties was so high that there was these makeshift morgues of sea containers with ice, you know, and just mountains of bodies getting tagged before they get sort of chucked in the sea container. So we thought, well, hang on, we've got to very quickly send guys to the morgues or these makeshift morgues, as well as try and find the guys in the hospital. So we'd split up in two groups and start walking through the walking through the area and, you know, couple of the guys had long hair and so whether it looked like a small unconscious girl in a bed you'd sort of go and have a have a sticky beak and okay next room and so we basically did that for three days until Wednesday they said you've looked at everyone and basically it's going to be dental or DNA that we can identify these guys. So So how many were missing at that time? Um, Eight. We'd, we'd, We'd found Phil. No I think we came home. We thought we we thought there was so there was, sorry, there were seven missing. We thought one or two guys might have been shipped unconscious back to Darwin or Adelaide. Mm-hmm. So we sort of held hopes because there was a couple of like uh, Mr. X's that looked mm-hmm. somewhat similar. So, um, but unfortunately, so that was in, it. In terms of that that effort, you know, the what you've just described seems an incredibly. Uh, emotional but, but coherent thing to do, you know, thinking through shit. We've checked the hospitals, we've got to check the morgues. Look, you're 19, as you said, first yep. time out of Australia. I assume most of the teammates are in a similar sort of age bracket. Yeah, yeah. How, how did the, how did you make these decisions and, and sort of get on with this at such a young age? It was like we'd been a really tight footy club, yeah. although we were pretty average. But having that, you know, Simon was unbelievable. He had the only mobile phone amongst us. Mm-hmm. Um, and so he was sort of, and he was the, coach about ones and so everyone sort of you know mm-hmm. had immediate respect for his direction and we all would sit around and we'd discuss and we'd all agree on on a on a way to sort of go about it um i don't know how many more days i could have done <laughs> yeah. i got to wednesday morning and grabbed one of the boys and said i can't i can't do this anymore like yeah. um and then by that stage they'd stop commercial flights so we couldn't get home so it was like shit we're sort of we're stuck here we're as well together. yeah um but yeah a couple of us had sort of hit breaking point by then yeah a, a mutual friend of ours and and unforgiving um, sixty alum Wayne Jones. Mm-hmm. Um, we asked him about the the Cabello massacre. Mm-hmm. Obviously, a very emotional and confronting time that that he went through in uniform. And we were particularly interested in his description of the sort of after action review and and just he talks about sitting with a cold cup of coffee and his mates and yep. and just trying to 
piece collectively it process this and and almost normalize it i mean did you you go through those sort of experiences with your mates in terms uh, not, of not trying to work not it out? really i think that's where your and wayne's training sort of came into right. stuff is to is to sort of review reflect you know how could we have done something better what did you see from your side and then you can actually wrap it up and put it away mm. it was really interesting to hear wayne speak of that sort of rwanda trip yeah i agree like that i i um you know incredibly brave and he was a young bloke at the time yeah, as well yeah. um but also we've had a million beers probably more actually that's <laughs> understatement and and just to hear him talk about it with that level of maturity yeah, i was uh, the really same I'd, I'd never yeah in, really in fact that impressive. whole if you haven't listened to to wayne jones's double episode um I, for, for our listeners i thoroughly recommend it he, he's an absolute class act and, and yeah. really insightful You'll also hear Wayne play some incredible solo <laughs> stuff from Don't Charge, <laughs> which I found, he, yeah, fantastic. He loved listening to that back. Oh, that's funny. So how and when did you meet Wayne and others? Uh, I met Wayne in 98, 99, I think, where he came down to the footy club. Um, and so I was, yeah, probably 16, 17 then. Um, and in, <laughs> in walked this guy, you know, Probably hadn't slept. Walked in with his footy shorts, no shirt, yes, yeah. and a bottle of rum. And a blue, blue singlet. Like, <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Winnie Gold hanging <laughs> out there. Um, and he walked onto the footy field, got best on ground, and went back to his rum that was in his bag. And I thought, who the hell is this bloke? <laughs> I just, I just found a new idol. I thought, yeah. <laughs> um, and then, yeah, Wayne and I sort of knocked, knocked about ever since then. Yeah. Mm. Yep. So back to Bali, commercial flights were closed, but you did get home because on October the 20th, there's a picture of you in the newspaper hugging Kevin Paltridge, yep. who was the father of Corey, who at the time was missing. Yep. So that's eight days after the blast, still yep. um, not found. Can you talk about coming home? So I think, so we came home the Wednesday night, so that was only, f- blast happened Saturday night, so it was only four and a half, full four days or five days. Um, and yeah, as I said, it got to a point where Commercial flights weren't flying. We were all still pretty strong in our mindset of well, we'll stay until we can't do anything. Mm-hmm. Um, and then when we were told we can't do anything, we all just sort of fell over and we're all absolutely exhausted. But there was no commercial flights. So um, very quickly, a, um, a guy, PK, an old Vietnam War vet, Paul Kennedy, um, basically sent the, an SOS out to a few people. And Kerry Stokes put his hand up and sent his private jet over to come pick us up. Um, so we rolled back in like Hollywood rock stars, which we thought was pretty cool. And it gave us a sort of another moment of, you know, this huge thing's just happened, but just let's surreal. just sort of yeah. sign out for a second, enjoy <laughs> enjoy this and have a sandwich and listen to, you know, a bit of music and watched a DVD on a little DVD player that I had. It was brilliant. Um, that that is then, the way you want yeah. to come back from a footy trip, obviously not under those circumstances, yeah, 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 but exactly. a private yeah, jet's not in, bad. Exactly. Yeah. Um, but funny, it was uh, we flew into the international airport, we then taxied halfway to the domestic, uh, and they stopped the plane and we had some customs guys come on and take all our clothes that we were wearing that night. They wanted to swab them for bomb material and whatever. Yeah. Um, and I remember this really unusual moment, having a cigarette in the middle of the two airports on the runway, <laughs> just going, what is, this is so surreal. This is weird. Mm. <laughs> this is real weird. And then uh, they had a hangar that was set up with Heber Media and all their families in it. So we then jumped back on the plane, taxied over to them and and then got back out. So there's yeah, a whole heap of video of us getting off the plane to the, yeah. to the media then. So you, you just mentioned the um, the customs process and you, you alluded before that the AFP um, personnel in, in country were, were pretty magic. Can you talk a bit about your interactions with the, the Australian government response to the, the blast? Yeah, 
I believe it was the Monday afternoon we'd been introduced to a few of the AFP guys that had come over and they sort of they were unbelievable. They made us feel super welcome. There was obviously there was international media just everywhere Hammering at the time. In. Yeah. And we were getting phone calls to our hotel rooms asking for guys that were missing, can you pop them on and trying to work out exactly who was missing and it was pretty nasty stuff. So the uh, AFP guys were really good in in sort of a, how they approached us and made us feel super comfortable and obviously they were um, needing to take some pretty conclusive statements, which a lot of us hadn't actually stopped at that stage and gone back through the story in your head sort of thing. So mm. um, I remember a, a guy, and I still keep in touch with him, Mark Lang, um, he sort of said, look, I you know, wouldn't mind taking your witness statement. You know, Do you want to go and grab a drink and come and meet me in this hotel room? And uh, I remember buying a litre bottle of Jack Daniels duty-free. <laughs> and so I've gone and grabbed this bottle. A drink. I've gone Just and grabbed this, drink. grabbed this bottle and two glasses. And uh, he said, I'll probably need it. So uh, I've grabbed two glasses and this bottle of rum, a bottle of bourbon, um, started my witness statement and uh, I was just sort of pouring us drinks. And by the end of it, he said, okay, we've got about 10 pages of material here, really detailed stuff. This is fantastic. Um, you know, I reckon I need that beer. And I said, well, I think we've polished off that bottle. He said, yeah, there's nothing left in the bottle and he hadn't had a drink. And I reckon I was still stone cold sober. Yeah, like right. just the first time I'd actually gone through the story in detail. So, mm, um, but yeah, Lang has just, he's kept in touch over the years and um, I'm not sure if we can say it, but I'll tell you a story that in late November, he rang me, so probably six weeks later and said, um, I'm sitting in a room in the middle of nowhere with a guy we've just caught that we reckon's the mastermind. Is there anything you want me to say to him? <laughs> I was like, oh, if I could swap spots, <laughs> if I could trade places just for five minutes laying it. Mm -hmm. um, but he kept me abreast with all this, you know, all the information. He knew enough to say or what he could say, I suppose, mm -hmm. but he knew that we wanted to know exactly what was going on with operations because it, it sort of went quiet there for a while and we thought, yeah. have they just given up on finding these blokes? And you just don't know what's going on, sort of behind closed doors I suppose so but yeah unbelievable group of guys we still keep in touch with all the all of them it's fantastic mm. can we just come back to the hangar and the <coughs> reunification with family what did that look like and feel like to see your family there and for them to see you but knowing that there were some of your mates that weren't going to see their yeah. family and vice versa yeah so I think um When we decided we were going to stay, it actually wasn't a decision. It, we just we thought well, we're there as a footy trip, you know. We're gonna we're not leaving until we leave as a as the group we came over here with. And um, there was a couple of guys that passed that I was really close to, um, and I remember speaking to their parents on the phone, and they're saying, you know, okay, well, we'll get the flight and we'll come over. And I remember just thinking, we can't have you know my mate's dad come and walk through the morgues with us on a you know, on a tu next on Tuesday, or you just can't let a parent mm. go through what we were sort of already there doing, I suppose. So, um, but I also think that those moments really taught you to put your emotions at the back seat. You've got a job to do, and so by the time we did come home and the hangar was there, I remember feeling far more emotional seeing the parents of my mates that didn't come back at the time than I saw. You know, I saw mum and dad and thought, okay, great, but I've got bigger things to worry yeah, about right. here. I'm fine. Yeah. On that, I mean, what you've just described is mind-blowing levels of trauma. I mean, yep. I, I don't think I'd sort of tweaked clearly the, the blast itself that evening. But but what's really struck me in, our, in this conversation just now is the days afterwards, what you were taking yeah. on board and yeah, what you were really dealing heavy. with. And 
But going through hospitals and morgues trying to find your mate, I mean, that is full on. Mm. And even when you come back to Australia, you're still acting in that selfless mode. You've got a job to do. You're looking after other people. Um, at what point or, or did it sort of sink into you that, that okay, maybe I need to process this or, or was there uh, support offered or, or taken up by you in those early stages? Uh, yeah, not so much there and then, but I was pretty aware that there was – you couldn't have come out of that without it taking somewhat yeah. of a toll, especially when you're completely unprepared for it. Um, I accepted some professional counselling that was put on by the government at the time. They sort of gave us a couple of really willing volunteers to, to sort of get in and help out. Um, none of the other boys decided to take it up. Um, I remember mum just saying, you know, have a crack. And I thought, well, I can't go backwards. I can, yeah. I can go to a few sessions and say this isn't working but I can't go backwards I can only actually take some positives from it so um, yeah decided to get involved in that and you know thank God I did thank God I did you yeah know? Um, it gave me a lot of really good lessons and so awareness tools, of myself like, and yeah. tools but well probably not tools as much then mm-hmm. but you know I still seek counselling every now and then yeah. when I need it and that sort of the last few years have very much given me the tools and um, just being aware of mental health and, and the last few years there's been huge community yeah. you know acknowledgement of it and how important it is and um, even stuff um, Dan yeah. I remember actually a I can't remember what interview or what I read, but I remember a quote that Dan said, why does it have to be PTSD? Why can't there be this post-traumatic growth? Yeah. You know? And and I'm very much a positive thinker and positive outlook. And so hearing that and thinking, well, great, why can't I be better? You know, why does it need to be this? You know, when you think of PTSD, you think of this black spiral that points yeah. south, you know. Yeah. Why does it have to be that? Why can't I acknowledge what's happened and think, well, I know how bad shit can be. And there's guys that aren't here today that have the opportunity I have, you know, mm. with a with a heart that still beats. And so, you know, got to live, got to live life to the fullest. So I, I try and do that every day. Well, and also, and, and again, just reflecting on what you've just shared with us, the, what you did during those moments, mm. you know, the composure you displayed and then that selflessness you displayed in the days after. I mean, that's amazing. Like, you, you know, I... I yeah, t- I, I, I put a lot of it down to team strength rather than individual strength. You know, it's even so having it, having guys you can you're you're all there together. Yeah, you know, you're stronger as a group. No, and even person. even coming home, I mean, we sort of would meet up at the pub basically every day, and to go through it with a group of guys that they weren't interested in counselling because a lot of these guys' older male mindset was you don't know what I've been through, and fair enough because not many people did. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> not, not many people had yeah. been in that situation. So. Um, for us to go to the pub and, you know, a bloke could cry one day and another bloke could cry the next and we'd all be there for each other and mm. you couldn't look your mate in the eye and not think you'd been through it because we'd all been there together. So there was a good sort of um, get around your mate's mentality. But, yeah, I think seeking a bit of professional help, you know, got me a, a hell of a lot further. Yeah. It, it was interesting, Dan, talking about some in the veteran community that there is that sometimes still, I think, that, that stigma or you know, the old, yeah. you don't know, you weren't there type thing, and that's understandable. Um, but sometimes you can have, I think he calls it maladaptive co-rumination, where mm. you have that support from people who are there, but you sort of go down in this spiral together. Yeah, um, yeah And, okay. you know, he was sort of reflecting it, it needs, this is where some of the, you know, just that professional intervention can help it stop becoming this this negative thing to catch yep. up with your mates and relive the event and more of a, a positive support thing. And it, it sounds like you, you found, uh, or you just mentioned it was pretty positive in terms of the, the support you're getting from your mates there. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it was probably 
a little bit too much beer drunk, but uh, yeah. for it to be positive. But uh, it was you know what we did at the time and was probably what we were doing before the bomb anyway. So. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> well, Wayne Jones talks about closing the loop. You know, post Cabello, that cold cup of coffee enables not just you to think about your perspective, but to get everyone else's perspective. You talked about professional help, but a lot of the guys not wanting it. How did they close the loop or have they closed the loop? Short answer, no. Uh, I think a lot of guys are still scratching their head. Um, I've tried many times, but I have this internal struggle where I, I actually feel a fair bit of empathy for kids that have come out of you know poor communities and fed a whole lot of bullshit to think that blowing up Westerners is a good thing to do. Yeah. Um, and so, I, you know, I, I can't look at a kid on the TV and hate him. You know, it's mm. more the sort of ringleaders that are doing this mind fucking, I suppose, if you mm. could call mm. it. But, um, yeah, it's it's that sort of fight of hatred, you know, survivor's guilt, um, you know, I remember sort of first acknowledging my PTSD and, you know, obviously knowing a whole lot of guys in the regiment thinking this had this huge imposter syndrome of, you know, <laughs> I, I shouldn't. And, um, yeah, so there's all, all ter- t- types of internal battles, but uh, been in a good place for a while with it, so. I know you're waiting for me. I know I'm being a So 12 months later, members of the footy club go back to Bali on the 12-month anniversary of the attack, and uh, there's a court case there, Amrosi's an accused, uh, he's being sentenced, and Brad Phillips when Amrosi gets sentenced to death, um, storms up to the barrier, separating him from the rest of the audience and screams out, die, Amrosi. Was this revenge? Is it... What, what's coursing just, through your brain I think it's just your directing. Um, I think, yeah, Rooster was just there and torn up and mm. he had an opportunity to sort of vent it, I suppose. But, yeah, it's... Anger's, anger's a, a pretty quick place to end up mm. with it, you know. There's a, a little anecdote, again, in an article talking about you who um, picked up a stone from the bomb site, you carry it with your playing gear, footy playing gear, and before each game, taking the stone out of your bag and kissing it. Jeez, I didn't. <laughs> it's still in my footy bag, I think. And it also goes along with... Um, there's a little piece of brickwork that I took from the old footy club before it got bowled over for the new one. Um, so they sit sit together. But, uh, yeah, geez, I hadn't thought about that in a while. Um, just a bit of a... Just remember, you know, what, you, you know, what you're playing for. It sort of became more than a footy game pretty quickly. Mm. And, in fact, the jumper, the jumper got changed. There was a, yeah. a little bit of writing yeah, written on the jumper. For the boys written at the top of it. Mm. So we were allowed to play with that for the 2003 season. Mm. Which was a breakout season for me. Played some great footy. <laughs> Dashing forward pocket. <laughs> no, I'd sort of grown. I, I was really a really short kid, you know. And I, so weirdly, I hit puberty at about 20, 21 <laughs> um, and sort of shot up and, and sort of everything started coming together a bit for me. But 
I couldn't hear, which was a bit of a downfall when you, you couldn't hear someone that was about to tackle you a metre away on your left-hand side. But so, <laughs> apart from that, I started playing some good footy. So you've got a lot of good mates uh, inside the SAS regiment. Mm-hmm. How have you found that? <clears throat> Has that been cathartic? That Absolutely. Been, um, Absolutely. Yeah. Um, and I'd almost say probably cathartic for a lot of blokes as well. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm, you know, I speak pretty deeply about well normal normal stuff that people don't really want to approach as conversations and, and allow guys to sort of get it out themselves and they're, they're able to talk and have a beer with a guy that's not you know in the in the unit so expressing a bit of you know pain here and there they know it's not going to get fed back in mm-hmm. and they're going to be thought of as a weaker sort of human being and the likes but I remember um, after Dave O'Neill and Crackers and Macca died yeah um, being able to there, be there for the families of people and, and sort of sit around and have a beer and, and sort of get people to talk about, you know, the shit that everyone was hurt by yeah. um, was actually a really fulfilling thing for me to be able to sit there and, um, you know, have Taryn and Sarah and, you know, who've, who've become really close friends, um, be comfortable thinking that the guy that they're talking to has been through some shit as well. Yep. And so it's not this... Yeah, you know, it was sort of somewhat of a counsellor that wasn't a counsellor. Yeah, um, and and as you say, sort of disconnect one one absolutely. one step from the the work side. Yeah, yeah, but but still close. And and some guys are ringing me up saying, "Can we just go for a beer on a Saturday?" And it would be me and them sitting at the OBH, and I'd sort of think, "Well, where's everyone else?" <laughs> and they're like, "Boy, well, I just don't want to talk work." Every time yeah. I catch up with these guys, it's talking work. I go to work, I talk work. You know, so. Um, so those three guys that were tragically killed drowned in a car um, in Victoria um, terribly. And actually, I mean, it, it's interesting you say that because I, I, I was actually deployed to Timor at the time with mm. the squadron. We came back with a lot Maybe of people, in, including Wayne, for the, the funerals. And it was this, I think it was three and four days or something across Australia. Bang, bang, bang. Bang, bang, bang. And it was almost like, um, to, to your point, it, it was almost, I remember towards the end, I remember in the first one um, in Perth, in Crackers, funeral yep. everyone was still trying to stay staunch yeah and and they played getting away with them you know people started crying <laughs> and and by the end of it you know before the service even started everyone was crying it was almost like this was permission yeah. to have those sort of conversations you just reflected yep. clearly about the the three guys our three mates we just lost but also about other stuff you know the, yeah. the the other sort of um i guess trauma that maybe was unprocessed from the the operational tours we'd done to that stage well, i remember you've spoke to the point uh in a previous episode unforgiven 60 um, <laughs> <laughs> um where you'd been trained to do all this stuff on deployment not hang on they've died back home it was just this it was so just weird. so left field yeah. so unprepared so hang on that wasn't that wasn't a chapter in the book that we've read and and literally to the point and and it was the the commanding officer at the time who called me to to sort of say this had happened and he and he said they they came off the causeway yeah and i'm trying to think in tarrant Cout, is there a yeah, causeway? <laughs> like you know like yeah, it, yeah, it was yeah. obviously it was it was in afghanistan but you know, your brain has people only die not, in afghanistan yeah. yeah um and then it was just and i, I remember i kept you know, when I was talking to the squadron, I kept referring to weddings. You know, I said, oh, we, you know, we need, we can only send 20 people back for the weddings. And it, for some reason, I kept saying weddings instead of funerals. Yeah. It was a really yeah. weird sort of, um, yeah, process. Mm. So you've described a, a couple of roles that you've taken in assisting others. What would your advice be to people who are going through trauma, who have confronted the most profound adversity? What are the lessons learned from your life that might be completely transferable 
if someone's sitting there thinking, yeah, I'm struggling to get through something in my life? Um, pick up the phone. There's so many places you can call, you know, and, and everyone's got a friend that wants to help as well. But don't don't just rely and use them as a fallback. Um, professional help's there. It's called that for a reason. Mm. It's, uh, it's, pretty, it's a pretty valuable tool. Um, if you don't get along with your first counsellor, try a second, try a third, try yeah. a fourth, keep going. Um, you'll find someone. I've been lucky to you know, have several counsellors that have all been a great fit, whether that's my openness to it and always sort of willing to give it a shot. But I've also found some... some um, I get along with all the counsellors, but they all have a different skill set on different focuses and, and where to dig and where to probe. And, yeah, I've got them to thank for, for being... No, it's in good condition, but mm. but in better, far better condition than I could mm. have been, I suppose. Well, I think that definition of resilience, you know, the one that was given to us by Dr. Lee Snodabart, that resilience is better than expected outcome given the adversity faced. I mean, yeah, you, you'd be the <laughs> definition of that. And and I just want to hone in on that idea of giving the adversity faced because I think there's a couple of prime sort of blockers for people to seek help, and and one is this sort of. I guess I, I find the the analogy of a physical injury. I mean, if if you'd blown your knee out, mm. bloody playing footy, you'd, you'd go straight to the doctor, and, and you know you get this big dose of trauma or a cumulative dose of trauma, and and yet we don't seem to to want to get the help in the same way. But the other, you mentioned the term imposter syndrome before, almost, yeah. uh, and and if I'm reading this wrong, correct me, but almost like well, that stress I experienced doesn't warrant having PTSD. Was that the kind yeah. of yeah? Well, well, I also, I think PTSD is a, a different thing for everyone. It's, Absolutely. Um, obviously in defence and, you know, first responders sort of stuff, it's it's pretty similar. But the way mine would come through would be very dependent on how I was taking care of myself. Mm-hmm. Um, and so normally I'd just hit the floor and then I'd reflect and go, well, hang on, the four weeks leading up to that, you went out a hell of a lot. Yeah. You weren't looking after yourself. You weren't eating well. You weren't, you know, so, so there's some really easy things that I can I can do to just keep myself keep myself well um, yeah so so it took me a while until the penny really dropped and I thought holy shit this is actually something I've got and I it was like a weight had come off my shoulder I just let it hit me and thought well actually there's there's actually not nothing wrong with that and even the acknowledgement of it and finding those triggers and and mm. how you can benefit yourself is a hugely positive thing yeah you know? And and I think you know from the work we've done and, and from the, the our mates, um, this idea that, that the stressor needs to be some threshold, like you yeah. need to have been in a bomb blast or a, yeah. a combat zone, it's bullshit. I mean, the the way it works, it, it does it is relative to the individual. It's pointless yeah. trying to compare. Oh well, that girl went through something much worse than me, and she's okay, so I shouldn't seek help. I mean, yeah. that, that's a, a very um, it's a it's an incorrect comparison to be trying to make. Yeah, and well, Bo Miles brought it up. Yeah. Um, previously where he said he felt he didn't have a story to a specific story <laughs> yeah, to write on you yeah. know um i've been watching his stuff for for years yeah now. most he's, interesting he's dude on the planet brilliant. Yeah. he's so mm. good I, I love the way he thinks i love the way he approaches stuff like i i've uh yeah got a got a huge respect for Bo. I, yeah but um and and going back again you know what uh, hamish blake said about the the four-legged table you know, if you've got something wrong, you can't just work on the other three legs. You've got <laughs> yeah. to fix the fourth leg for it to yeah. stand up. So, mm. Sensitive subject on mental health, but you've posted in social media a couple of things that have alluded to teammates, former teammates of yours that, that have taken their own life. Yeah. Is, is that a, as a result of 2002? <clears throat> is there a direct relationship with that? Yeah. 
Yep. So we uh, we lost uh, Adam Nimmo at the start of the year in February, took his own life, and Adam's had a pretty up and down 19 years. Um, he's gone through what we thought was a pretty good patch the last couple, and I was in, you know, I'd spoken to him basically the day before he took his own life, and um, where we were really close, and so the. And I'm always super open with Adam. I try and make him feel as comfortable and I always sort of make myself vulnerable to allow him to sort of the space to sort of come in. Um, it, should he feel that there's something going on in his life he, he wants to sort of lean in a mate for? Um, obviously, we've been through basically hell and back together. Mm. Um, and so when he took his life the next day, that hurt. That mm. really hurt. So just to think that he was in so much pain and struggling and didn't feel he could lean on his mates. It's unbelievable, isn't mm, it? Yeah, that that was uh, yeah, that was a hard hard couple of days. And um, one thing we've learned how to do well is is uh, uh, honour, I suppose, mm. a, a mate's a mate's life. And we we sort of celebrate it pretty well. Um, not just a throwing a party for a party's sake, mm. but uh, we we threw a good one for Adam. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, we talked about the Gratwick Club on Anzac Day and you know mm. you and I witnessed it the way that you know, the pewters which are mm. encased yeah. in a wonderful box uh, the pewters all relate to someone who has been killed on operations and you take the pewter out it gets filled for you you whilst you're holding the pewter tell a story that mm. relates to that person just a wonderful way to encode memories yeah, yeah I've been honoured to drink out of a few of those dog bowls at times <laughs> <laughs> that's true yeah so yeah. below the, the four um yeah, uh, some animals. Operators, that there, there's the dogs. The dogs have been killed. But their you, lives celebrated, yeah. Yeah. Um, so you, you've spoken about sort of the, the advice you'd give to someone who, who's, who's dealing with trauma and, and just to reach out, make that first step. What tools have you found useful for you um, to, to sort of work towards that, that <coughs> idea of post-traumatic growth? Uh, the last counsellor and I were working on a lot of emotional connection stuff you know when big things happen in my life I seem to sort of flick it to the side and think of the positives and keep on trucking sort of thing and and to to stop and acknowledge and understand and whether that's if you're driving along the road and and getting away with it comes on the radio and you feel like a tear's welling up yeah don't change channel you know keep the song on but maybe pull over Mm. and take a moment to go you know my breath's tightened a little Mm -hmm. um i'm feeling emotional why am i feeling emotional because you know these boys meant a lot or whatever it might be but just understanding that and then sitting in it for as long as you feel comfortable not too long but giving it enough space to go to sort of feel that emotion and then pushing on and emotion's not a bad thing you know to let out a tear every now and then and um tim i'll you know go back and i think i thanked you for this at the grotto (laughs) when i came and said hello but uh you talking about your dad at your Anzac Day, you know, what you'd miss from um, COVID and lockdown was mm-hmm. being able to spend those moments and just hearing that little break in your voice and hearing you get a little, take it on board. Mm-hmm. It's really special. You know, I was sitting in my shed and listening to that episode and it meant a lot and I'm sure there would be a heap of other blokes in their sheds on mm-hmm. their own on Anzac Day having a beer that mm-hmm. would have really taken a lot from that. So thank you for that. For that, no, it was really a, special. Just a big crybaby, mate. Mate, so am I. Oh. <laughs> I cry at the undercover boss, you know. You've got a job. Here's 10,000 bucks. But oh, I mean, it's that, so beautiful. That is funny that, that that's even a thing, you know. And, and back in the day, I think it really was. And it, it's awesome that, that I don't think it is so much anymore. Mm. And uh, Well, you know, certainly in, in the 
the, the circles I think we're, we're moving in that people are starting to recognise exactly what you just said, Maka, that these are emotions. Yeah. You know, they're not you, they're not strong or weak or anything. They're, they're natural reactions to stuff that's gone on. And, and even that idea of recognising this, that this isn't weird or this, there's nothing wrong with me, yeah. that this is actually just how your body processes yeah. this stuff. No, I'm a crybaby, but I also put my hand up and say I'm fucking tough as well. <laughs> like, you know what I mean? Yeah. Like, why, why does an emotion have to be a negative or bad uh, yeah. connotation, you know, yeah. when you can take some strengths and positives from it? Yeah, That's absolutely. Great. Yeah, I'm just a crybaby. <laughs> <laughs> well, Erin Hoey, who's a meditation teacher, mm. I mean, obviously my meditation teacher, I've spoken about her before, but who's done work with us on one of our recent retreats, she talks about surfing the emotion, like mm. exploring why you feel a certain thing. It doesn't have to be sadness or guilt. It could be happiness, but just being present with that emotion and understanding why you why you do it. Mm. And uh, yeah, I, I, I quite I like that. that. And I, and I like that almost that that recognition. You know, your emotions, your thoughts aren't yourself. You know, a lot of addiction therapy talks about that surf the urge, recognise this is your body craving mm. something and you can ride it. But even um, other just day-to-day reactions, being able to, to sort of recognise, ah, oh, that's that's my old mate jealousy buddy creeping <laughs> in, <laughs> yeah, or, or, yeah. or oh, there's my ego going, yeah. or, or whatever. Mm. It normalises a bit for me anyway, and, mm. and I, I sort of... Yeah, you can distance and, and mm. process it better. Yeah, like, I'd also I would also say like I lost my old man about seven years ago, and that knocked me around a lot, you know. And mm, I, and it was yeah. and it was expected. He had uh, MND, so we went through this two years of sort of a downward spiral. Yeah. But when it sort of happened, it knocked me around a lot, and I used to get really emotional about it um, until I thought, well, if I didn't get emotional about this <laughs> such an incredible human being. What kind of bloke am I? Yeah, that's right. I I remember Mark Donaldson once saying, and this is the first time I'd heard it, but, but, you know, they call it post-traumatic stress disorder. It'd be a disorder if you didn't have a reaction to some of this this stress. And and clearly, I mean, that's a medical term and it's DSM, diagnostic thing. Got it. But this idea that disorder, it's abnormal to be having these ill effects after a massive stressor, it kind of paints it in the wrong picture, doesn't it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So we're coming up to 20 years post... um, Bali bombing, and there's been, well, an interesting, interestingly timed announcement that the bomb makers' <laughs> um, prison sentence will be foreshortened. Yeah. H- how did that feel for you? Did it conjure up any sorts of emotion? I, uh, <clears throat> I think I learnt many years ago that life sort of just isn't fair at times. Yeah. You know, and so I almost laughed and thought, oh, of course, you know, of course the the timing is just perfect, isn't it? <laughs> Naturally, like, yeah. They couldn't let. I think they picked him up in 2011. He'd put some pretty nasty bombs together uh, alongside the 2002 Sari Club bomb. Um, been on the run since 20, you know, 2002 to 2011, as I said, and. Picked up in 2011, given a 20-year sentence, and he's out in 10, sort of thing. It's, mm. it's, it sort of seems a bit, uh, bit odd, but uh, that's that is their system, and it is what it is. And I can't, Brad, Brad from Perth can't change that. So, well, Maka, what, what about forgiveness? I mean, the Indonesians would say he's been de-radicalised. There's reform. Is forgiveness an option? For me, yes, but. Um, I, I think he has actually shown and proven he wanted to meet with victims and victims' families pretty early on and apologise, and he was pretty forthcoming with that. And um, I don't know, there's there's probably some bigger fish, you know, a barbecue Bashir. I, I you know, wouldn't mind spending a bit of time with him, but um, I think there's sort of key people that make decisions that, you know, I don't think you can change. They've they've mm-hmm. made a pretty clear decision to go down a certain path. 
Um, but the sort of pawns that are underneath them, mm. I, you know, I, if I live my life thinking about, you know, taking that anger with me, I wouldn't be getting very far. Well, and and you, you mentioned before you, that you, you're not <coughs> unempathetic towards some of these folk in terms of how they've been brought mm. up. And I think you used the term mindfuck, which is a, a pretty, yeah. I think, apt description of some of the indoctrination that, that yeah. some of these folk have gone through. And I mean, my goodness, it happens on all sides of the equation. I mean, Absolutely. But it it is, it, it's hard to dethatch. I mean, it, it's that wonderful Orwell quote from a distance, everything seems really clear, the yeah. closer you get, the vaguer it becomes. I mean, it's easy to just put someone up as bad and, and to hate them and that sort yeah. of stuff. And then when you start uncovering, well, you know, what do they believe? What have they seen? Yeah. What have they experienced with it? You know, and yeah, it's it's um, it's um, it's funny that that concept of hate. I think people have been involved in these sort of things. When you think about it, it yeah, it is hard just to have that two-dimensional yeah. uh, sort of view on, on a lot of these kind of issues. Yeah, I came back pretty angry. Like I was, mm-hmm. I was a yeah, I was a pretty angry kid for for a couple of years yeah. afterwards, um, and then it just you know I think there was just a, a penny dropped in my head and thought well the only person that's getting worked up and upset and is you and you're only going to take you that one say way. About anger, Tim. What yeah. kind of emotion is it? Yeah, I mean it's a kind of pointless emotion. It doesn't actually get you anywhere. Yeah, you feel good every now and then. When the news, <laughs> yeah, you, when don't, <laughs> you, don't, you don't feel good. That's the that's the irony. Yeah, you don't. Yeah. It's not good for anyone around you. It's not good for you. It's completely pointless. I had one of those moments in year twelve when uh, something had gone wrong at school, and I punched one of those pin-up boards, you know, expecting the foam inside it, but I'd hit one of the metal rods of the framing <laughs> and busted my hand. Um, fortunately, no one saw it, but I had a cast on for a cast. One <laughs> felt pretty stupid. Yeah. It was one of those immediate responses. Oh, Further proof that anger is a dumb emotion. Yeah, mm. yeah. Mm. And the only person that really gets burnt up is, is yourself. And, you know, we've got a boys' chat line, the guys that survived, and there was a fair bit of noise on it um, when we heard that news come through the other day. And I sort of said, guys, you know, don't don't burn yourselves up. You know, there's that's their culture. We can't change it. Yep, it's fucked. But the life ain't fair. And if you haven't worked that out by now, mm. you know, you're not. You wouldn't be on this text group. Yeah. Yeah. Let's talk some rock and roll real quickly. Mm. Uh, <laughs> you were at a gig that you played at Benjamin, <laughs> where you were told to stop because there was a wedding next door. You're too noisy. This rock band. And what happened next? Well, we, we, we spoke. <laughs> I mean, tragically about about Cracker's funeral. But Cracker's. We we'd started Tongue Charge. Um, so pin, <laughs> sit back. <laughs> you, you've oh, opened yeah. the gates. But <laughs> we, we don't need the whole Wikipedia <laughs> page on it. Wasn't it a coag or something? What's that? Was it a coag over in Brizzy? Yes. Yeah. yeah so yeah. Wayne and I started a, started sort of playing together and, Chog- and clearly none of us could sing. It was Chogham. Chogham yeah, exactly. Yeah. The Commonwealth Heads of Government meeting. And, um, and so, and then Brooke, who couldn't even spell the word bass, said, oh, I want to play what's the easiest instrument, and it's clearly bass. Yeah. And so we, we formed this little nucleus and we were playing, but none of us could sing. And sort of Wayne and I would timidly try and sing out of tune and it just wasn't working. And then we'd heard about, well, Wayne knew crackers. I, I hadn't met him at that stage. Guy in a different squadron. Also an excellent footballer, mind you. Yeah, great footy player. Yeah, probably not a lot he couldn't do, uh, the old cracker. And he only had one speed. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Either go or stop. But, but his thing was, you know, out of out in the clubs and, and he'd sort of talk to the band and, and kick the lead singer off if there was a live band and, and then just bring the house down. Yeah. And, and so we said, we need a bit of that. Shirt off, one-arm push-ups with a mic in the other hand. He was an, he was an animal. He, he was the class, quintessential stereotype front man, front man wasn't Absolutely. he? Absolutely. Like larger than life sort of thing. Anyway, so he came on board. And this one particular night, played at the OBH, 
we were terrible, obviously, but the bar knew, or the, the pub knew we'd bring a lot of thirsty friends, and, and so it was worth their while. And we were supposed to finish at midnight. Um, it was a function area next to a, a place, uh, or the function area next door was having a wedding, and they were saying, you need to cut it. And of course, that was a red rag to a ball with crackers. <laughs> We'd finished anyway. But it's it was like, over. Fucking yeah. no one tells me to stop, boys. <laughs> one, two, top. three, four. <laughs> and um, so, we, yeah, we didn't get invited back, but it was, it was good fun. What's your power song? We often ask our guests what's the song Ooh. that gives them a little motivation. Maybe you've got, them in, got it in the headphones before you run out onto the footy ground or yeah, well, you need to be yeah. inspired. Little, power, little song. Okay, power song. Okay, power song. Because I'm, I'm a real Aussie, you know, Paul Kelly country mm-hmm. sort of folky sort of music but uh power song was always uh rage against the machine ghost of tom joan and okay. it was a uh, it was a uh bruce springsteen cover that they right did. Just i've got to look that up oh, i'm a cool. big it's rage cool. fan it's yeah cool. yeah yeah well the unforgiving 60 podcast has the unforgiving 60 playlist on spotify we'll include it there you go unforgiving 60 playlist we'll <laughs> listen to right both now. versions we already have yeah. some rage against the machine on that playlist oh it's classic power song stock but yeah, we'll, we'll chuck Bruce's version on as well. Timmy, has your power song changed? If I don't, if I recall well, correctly, I'm just staying with Jimmy Barnes' No yeah. Second Prize because yeah, I just love good. it. And actually, I do periodically listen to the playlist when I'm running. Full disclosure, mm. that's not very often. <laughs> <laughs> and I like it. Yeah, yeah. When, when No Second Prize comes on, it actually reminds me of uh, a bus trip to a grand final yeah, when I was playing for the Australian Defence Force Academy. And, yeah, we put that song on and it, it kind of takes me back to sitting in the bus yeah. just feeling the emotions and mm. the anticipation it's before cool. a grand final. Yeah, you, You'd get through the whole 90 song playlist in a 5 pay <laughs> run, wouldn't you? <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, very funny. Well, you guys have always also been great in getting the uh, getting the externals back onto Spotify oh. and, and iTunes. We, I've we, been listening to their yeah, and back catalogues. And, it's and, so good. And in their most recent social mm. media posts, they've said they're going to be touring they have already been touring in yep. yeah, Sydney and I think also yeah. in, in Melbourne, but they're coming to the West Coast Brilliant. to do some tours. I think they play with the Cosmic Psychos over yes, there too. Yeah, they're, they're good yeah. mates. Good mates. Yeah, right. yeah. Um, in fact, Harry Moff was, was hitting Wayne and I up about a, about Song. a doubleheader and if we can we can get it together. So that'll be awesome. Yeah, I know. I've never met Moff, but uh, yeah, some of those songs are brilliant. No, he's, he's a very talented guy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Oh, clearly um, a really the multi-talented guy as well. And their, their latest song also a rip, absolute ripper. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, good good stuff, the externals. If you haven't checked that out, we'll provide some more links and, and clearly, the in fact, the majority of the, the music we, we play throughout the podcast is um, uh, kindly been uh, offered to us from the, the externals. Much of their discography we have. A, a large portion of the discography. You seem to go to the same songs every time, though. Yes, yeah, so do I. <laughs> La- lazy editing. <laughs> so oh, fantastic. Hey, Macca, thank you very much yeah. uh, thank, for thank coming in and having a, a conversation that we know is super difficult. Yep. And, um, yeah, coming up to the anniversary, the 20th uh, anniversary of Bali bombing, it's going to be a difficult day for everyone. I think all Australians will will um, have a moment on that day, and we certainly will as well. But thank you for coming no. on the show. And look, finally, just to echo Macca's <coughs> comments earlier, um, Jesus, if you are hurting at all, please reach out. We'll put some um, links in the, the show notes to some outstanding free counselling services. There are a bunch, as, as Macca mentioned, and that first step is is 
I mean, it's like going to the doctor if you do mm. your knee. You, you, you need to, to make that first step. Can I also finish on if you're a support person for someone as well, there yeah. is a million avenues out there as well. All the, the standard lifeline, Beyond Blues, they're there as a support network for supporters and carers as well as, as a person in need. So absolutely, seek them out. Great pickup. Cheers, Macca.
Now to the debrief. We try to go always a little further in this podcast and greatly appreciate your input. Please let us know your feedback, the good, the bad, or the ugly. Also, if you know someone who is living a life less ordinary, we'd love to hear about them. You can get in touch at debrief at unforgiving60.com. That's debrief at unforgiving60.com. If you have enjoyed this podcast, please tell your friends and write a review for us on Apple Podcasts. Until next episode, keep filling your unforgiving minutes with 60 seconds worth of distance run. See you next time on The Unforgiving 60.